Ryan, are you there? Hello, Michael. Hello, Internet. Hello, world. Hello, Worldwide Internet. Welcome to another edition of the Buck and Sack Show. I'm Michael Sachs in San Francisco. That man you hear on the other line is Ryan Buckley in Portland, Oregon. Ryan, we're in the two cities represented by the Western Conference Finals. We are talking now just moments after Game 2 of the Western Conference Finals ended a sensational three-point win by the home Warriors over the Blazers to take a 2 nothing lead. We're going to talk about that game and much else. How are you doing? I'm excellent, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great. This reminds me of my my many days producing uh, Warriors postgame live after many. these playoff games. Like a, a scramble to get on the air as soon as the broadcast uh, ended. But, you know, that was a lot more intense than this one. And, and uh, to be fair, that was a little more lucrative than this show is as well. But... Uh, I digress. I think this is a lot more fun. I'm thrilled to be uh, talking about this game with you. It was a great game. Went right down to the wire. The Warriors were down 17 in the first half. They had a huge third quarter. Then they got down by eight with about, like, I don't know, I think about four minutes to play. And then they yeah. own pretty much the last four minutes. Uh, so let's just get right into it. This is my good of the week. This game, this series, the NBA playoffs at large. I'm fired up. I'm loving it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, this what we you know we do a little uh, pre-show test just to make sure that we can uh, our connection's good and whatnot. And we were both just saying what a fantastic basketball this game was or basketball game it was, and it was really a, a great basketball game. I thought from start to finish. I mean the the way the Blazers bounced back after just getting getting shellacked in their in game one. Um, they they have a ton of moxie. I said it last week that. Terry Stotts is one of the most underrated coaches in the NBA. I think he's probably the most underrated coach NBA in the NBA. Um, he's just he, he's good at getting his guys ready, and I feel like he didn't have the chance to for Game One. And they gave the Warriors everything they could handle early in this one. I think they they pushed the lead to as many as seventeen or eighteen. Um, but the Warriors did what the Warriors do, especially the kind of the Warriors of old. And we talked last week also a little bit about how the, their style changes based on whether Kevin Durant is in the game or not. And it, it felt tonight uh, with the runs they had in the third and fourth quarters, a little bit like the Warriors of old, where, um, as a friend of mine put it, they're scoring touchdowns and the other team's scoring field goals and you just can't catch up. Yeah, it was a spectacular third quarter run. You know, this is the game when you take a one nothing lead in an NBA playoff series that you sort of expect the team that trails in the series to give it their best effort. Steve Kerr alluded to it before the game. He alluded to it to Doris Burke there at the beginning of the fourth quarter that the Warriors just needed to match the Blazers' intensity, match their desperation. It's hard to do. He he mentioned it, and I think it's so true. It's sort of human nature that the, those things go that way. You know, the Blazers, I think, are undermanned. Uh, without the war, With the Warriors not having Durant, it changes the whole complexion of the series. This is now the third game the Warriors, the third full game the Warriors have played mm -hmm. without their superstar forward. And it looks like he's going to be out for at least the next three. It's hard for me, honestly, Ryan, to even see him coming back in this series at all, unless it maybe goes to a game seven in Oracle. So they're going to have to get to the finals without him, which I think clearly they can do. You know, the thing that I think flies under the radar on a national NBA scene is the fact that the Blazers are without their center. Yusef Nurkic, who is having a tremendous season. He goes down with a brutal leg injury, probably, what was that, in March sometime? Uh, yeah, it was It was actually, it might have even been uh, very, very early April. It was only with a couple games left in the season, so yeah. it might have been the start of April. But yeah, late, late March, early April. 
Yeah, you know, I love talking to you about anything, but I especially love talking to you about this series because these are the two teams you know better than anybody. You're a lifelong Warrior fan. You covered the team for a long time, and now you cover the Blazers every day up in Portland. So really, I mean, who's better to talk to about these two teams than you? But uh, do, do you agree with me in saying that with Nurkic, particularly without Durant in there, uh, if the Blazers had Nurkic, they have a really, really, really legit chance of winning this series. And I think they have a legit chance of winning the entire thing. Without him, I don't think they have a legit chance of winning. If they had any chance of winning this series, they needed to pull out this game tonight. They couldn't go down 2-0. I, I'm not going to sit here and say the series is over. Anything can happen. You know, any guys can get hurt. Crazy things can happen. I still think the Blazers are a really good team offensively. They struggle defensively. Uh, you know, I don't give them much of a chance in this series now down 2-0. But with Nurkic, this has totally changed. And nobody talks about that. Everyone talks about Durant being out. But no one talks about the big center for the Blazers being out. Yeah, I think that Nurkic is certainly a difference maker for them and and would be would, would change the complexion of this series a lot. And you hear the term in boxing styles make fights and I think that if Nurkic was in this series it would take on a, a little bit different style and, and you wonder um I think there are aspects of it that could actually benefit the Warriors if they're wanting to uh, run and move the ball, and, and especially now that they're playing less isolation basketball without Durant, um, that's not the best matchup for Nurkic. But at the same time, uh, you know there, there's the ability to counter, especially because the Warriors don't have much on their front line, and, and the Blazers don't have anyone behind. They have Cantor, but he's not much. He's not a defender at all. And then yeah. Leonard is a big body who's not very skilled. Collins gives you a ton of effort, but he's just not big enough. And so they don't really have any anyone there protecting the rim. The other thing that I think is a, a really glaring deficiency is I, I think they need another three-point shooter or two. Uh, Seth Curry played a really nice game for them tonight, actually, but they don't have enough guys that can just come in uh, and spread the court and, and knock down shots. I think the Warriors have done a really nice job uh, clamping down on Lillard and on McCollum, and beyond that, there just aren't that many guys in the Blazers that you're afraid of beating you. You know, they have they have too much money tied up in contracts with guys like Evan Turner and Myers Leonard, who they're paying, you know, anywhere from you know twelve to sixteen million dollars a year to eighteen million dollars a year. It's just that's not it's money that they're not seeing coming back, and uh, and I think that they're they're a few bench pieces short. The Warriors are too, but then again, the Warriors superstars are just so much better than everyone else's and on top of it the Warriors bench has been playing a much bigger role than I anticipated uh Damian Jones getting meaningful run tonight Jordan Bell who's been in the doghouse all year getting some run Quinn Cook playing with some confidence there Jonas Jerebko really doing a nice job on the defensive end and uh, and hitting down the occasional set set shot uh, on the kick out. I mean, this Warriors bench was almost non-existent throughout the season, and it's almost been like found money for Kerr, it feels like. Do you agree? I totally agree. Uh, you, you hit on a couple topics that I want to expand on. I want to start with the Blazers and their center situation. Uh, they have nobody defensively center-wise no. that's, that's worth a damn, and you saw it a lot tonight. You saw the Warriors going to the rim at will. You saw a lot of plays where they ran the high pick and roll and kicked it to Draymond on the wing, and then he had the option there to drive it himself or kick it down low to the Warriors big, where that, whether that was Looney or, or Jordan Bell. And, and to your point, I mean, the Warriors played seven guys off the bench tonight. 
Uh, Damian Jones only played two minutes, but you know, but they were in an important spot. You know yeah, what I mean? It's I, not like he was had a huge impact, but the fact he's getting run that matters is is wild. Yeah. So if you discount him, six guys off their bench played nine or more minutes. So uh, that's really a huge story here with KD out. I mean, to your point. The bench was maligned all season. And then in the earlier two playoff rounds, they really didn't give him much at all either. I mean, I don't think Quinn Cook or Jordan Bell had played at all in the first two series. Yeah, I'm not sure they did either. Yeah, and and Jarepko hadn't played much. They've both played meaningful minutes, double-digit minutes, all of them, in these first two games. And and McKinney's still playing a little bit. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I didn't know that Damian Jones had any chance of coming back. I mean, I didn't see anything written about him. Then he kind of shows up in game one. Yeah. I-, I was shocked by that. I mean, he was actually going really good in the early part of the season. I think he was mm-hmm. even starting. He was starting, yeah. yeah he was their he, starting center. Yeah, he was starting at the beginning of the year. So for him to come back is good, obviously, with Durant out. But Livingston looks like he's found the fountain of youth. Uh, you know, I'm a Jordan Bell fan, as I know you are too. I didn't yep. really understand why he wasn't playing at all. Uh, he played 14 minutes. He was four of seven tonight, even three of four from the free throw line. So a really, really nice game for him. He had 11 points. But going back to the Warriors, if you look at, I'm sorry, going back to the Blazers, uh, if, you, if you look at their three bigs, Canner started, then they bring Collins and Leonard in off the bench. All of those are nice offensive players. They're terrible defensively. The Warriors attacked the hell out of them in the pick and roll. You saw it a lot there, particularly at the end of the game. Most of the Warriors run there in that last four and a half minutes was simply bringing whoever, if it was, I think it was Leonard was in the game late. So whoever mm-hmm. Leonard was, was guarding, yeah. his man would set the high, the high screen for whoever had the ball. Most of the time it was Curry. And then the Warriors just sort of attacked off of that. It worked time and time again. And, you know, I think if they had Nurkic, he's not a lot better defensively, but he's a little bit better defensively. Oh, I think he's considerably better defensively than anyone else they have. Yeah, yeah. And, and the Warriors would attack him in the same way, but he's just better. And, you know, this is a three-point game. so Better and bigger. It makes some of those, those second-chance points the Warriors were having tonight a lot tougher. I mean, guys like Looney and Draymond and even Jarebko were getting a bunch of tip-backs that I think maybe don't happen as much if, if you've got Nurkic. Which is big body in there. Yeah, and I don't want to continue to belabor the point about Nurkic being hurt. I just think that generally uh, it's not talked about very much at all. And, and the other thing is, to your point that you made about Terry Stotts, I mean, we've talked about it on this podcast, and I know their GM has made some bad moves, but they've got a hell of a team, man. I mean, they've built this team around the two, the two guards, uh, McCollum and Lillard. Lillard finally gets his due. I still think McCollum is criminally underrated, although he didn't play great tonight. Uh, he was 9 of 23. He struggled from the 3, 3 for 7 from 3. He had the ball in his hands a lot late and didn't score at all. I think he missed four shots in probably the last three minutes. A tough night for him. But if it weren't for him in that Game 7 um, against Denver on Sunday on Mother's Day, they wouldn't be here. He had 37 points in that game. I thought it was hero- a heroic effort by him. I think he just he carries himself with the utmost class, you know, out of Lehigh, incredible story. You know, people don't forget, but he was the big star on that Lehigh team that upset Duke in the NCAA tournament a bunch of years ago. I love McCollum. 
I love Lillard. And then all these other guys that they've got, Ryan, Aminu, Harkless. I mean, they, they picked Canner up off the scrap heap. Collins, Leonard, Seth Curry. I mean, no one saw Seth Curry having this sort of impact in his NBA career. And then Turner and Hood have been disappointments relative to what we expected when they came in the league. But they're playing meaningful minutes. And, you know, really, I think they're playing pretty well. So most of these guys are, are almost just kind of castaway players from other places that the Blazers have brought in. You know, they don't get any free agents really to come up to the Pacific Northwest. For them to be in this spot, sure, they're going to probably lose the series, but for them to even get this far with Nurkic out and, and, you know, just the way they've stayed the course with Stotts and Lillard and McCollum, those three, they built everything else around them. It's an amazing story. It really is. I'm I'm just really into the Blazers. I'm enamored with them. They're so tough. They keep coming at you. They have no quit in them. I really think they're a hell of an organization. Yeah, they're all they're kind of all about the things that I really love and they're they're about chemistry. It's almost like they're a little bit of a warrior's light where, you know, they don't they they their core has been together for a while. They're um, beloved in the community. They're superstars. Uh, kind of walk the straight and narrow. They're great role models. They're great in the community. And and then on top of it, they win basketball games. And they do it, like you said, with a lot of class and aplomb. And uh, they're a ton of fun to watch. And actually, we uh, this week we've been doing on our radio show a lot of Warriors Blazers, Blazers coverage, as you, as you might imagine. And on Monday, I actually had the chance to talk to CJ McCollum's brother, who is a superstar playing in Russia. Um, and he's, he's also played in China as well. I think he broke Jimmer for debt's record for the most points in a game. He scored like 82 points in a game over there or something like that. But, uh, yeah. So the other McCollum, Eric McCollum is, uh, is like a, is a volume scorer over, uh, across the, across the Atlantic. So it was, uh, but playing for Vlad's favorite team, I'm sure. I would imagine. Um, but, but you, but you just mentioning McCollum makes me think that we were talking to his brother specifically about where he's seen CJ grow the most. And he's, he's talked about really his creativity and his film study. And I I do think obviously way different players and they, and they did different things, but he reminds me a little bit of like a, of, of Steve Nash in the way that he uses his body in space. It's just, he's a, he's a really undersized guy and he seems to get himself these amazing looks, and he doesn't seem to do it with a ton of athleticism. It's all it's all craftiness, and it's all um, you know from from doing some of this game study and figuring out people's tendencies and using screens the right way. And he's one one of the most creative players in the game with the ball in his hand, and and really even he gets overshadowed by Lillard a fair amount. But I, I love CJ McCollum's game, and he's a really cool story. Yeah. So let's finish up this topic just by discussing the Warriors. You know, everybody's enamored with what they're seeing the Warriors do without Durant. You know, I think most Warrior, long-time Warrior fans are really enjoying seeing this. And, you know, and now everybody on Twitter and on Sports Talk Radio and podcasts and whatever want to talk about if the Warriors are better without Durant. And, and to be honest, I think that's a completely ridiculous argument to make. Uh, I, you know, we're talking about the best player, probably the best player on the planet right now. And, and talking about... Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, if a team's better off without him. That's crazy to me. I mean, I understand yeah. that they've won three and a half games without him. They were really lucky to win the first one in the game that he went out. Um, and, and you know, it took everything they had to come back tonight. Uh, the game six in Houston the, where they, you know, it that's going to live in Warrior 
uh, lore forever. To be honest with you, Ryan, and I don't want to talk about this too much because we're now two games into the next series, but I was a little bit surprised at how uh, almost giddy the Warriors were after winning that game. I thought that their reaction and what they said in the in the days after that game, they were very braggadocious after that game and almost like it almost felt like they thought they had won the NBA championship uh, by beating the Rockets there in the second round. And I, I just thought that I, I didn't, didn't really know what to make of it. it. I thought there was a lot to make of it. I'm not really sure what to make of it. But, you know, I, I was worried that they weren't going to be able to refocus uh, in time for the Blazers. But they've put those fears to rest. But I think just in general, uh, you know, they want they need Durant. If they get to the finals... You want to have Durant. I don't think they're a better team in the long run without him. I think they want him to come back next year. Whether he does or not you know, will remain to be seen. But to, to make the argument that they're a better team without him is crazy. Now, are they more enjoyable to watch from a Warrior fan perspective? Maybe from a pure basketball perspective? Perhaps. I, I could see you making that argument. But I, the argument they're better off without him is crazy to me. What do you think? Yeah, they're not better. They're different. Um, and that's... That, that's the best way and the simplest way I can put it. You cannot say that they are better off without him. That's just that's patently false. You, you can't take a guy that was scoring nearly 40 points a game in the playoffs and say you're better off without him. Now, it is fair to say that he cre- his presence create, is a, has a ripple effect that, that affects other players' games. Uh, and specifically, had seemed to have been affecting the games of Splash Brothers, Steph Curry, and Clay Thompson, right. and just the flow of the Warriors' offense in general. But just because it had changed the flow does not mean by any stretch that the Warriors are better off without him. That's that's foolishness. Yeah, we we agree. Let's move on. That's enough on the Eastern, or sorry, I should say Western Conference Finals. We don't need to talk about the Eastern Conference Finals right now, though. I, I really think that that's going to end up being an awesome series. And I'm just going to say, I think that whoever comes out of the East is going to have a very legitimate chance to beat the Warriors if it is the Warriors in the finals. I think the final, with or without Durant, I, you know, I think it's going to be a hell of a finals. I can't wait to see who comes out of the East, and I'm really looking forward to the finals. I'm enjoying these NBA playoffs as much as I've ever enjoyed the NBA playoffs in my life, honestly. It's like I can't miss a game. I look forward to the game all day, every day. I read about it nonstop, podcast nonstop. Uh, here we are talking on our podcast about it. I think it's been awesome, and I can't wait to see how it finishes up here over the next three three weeks or so. But that's my good of the week. What's your good of the week? Uh, my good of the week comes to the new second major of the PGA Tour season, and that is the PGA Championship. It used to be on the back end, but now they've moved it up to the second major of the year following the Masters. And today, one Brooks Kepka set the record at Bethpage Black, carding a 63-7 under. Um, just an incredible round. And he's a guy that I, I am a little bit fascinated by because I think that he's uh, – in some ways, a throwback. In some ways, he's almost a little bit aloof. There's been a little bit of controversy surrounding him. Um, at least, when I say controversy, not anything scandalous. But at the um, at the Masters, there was there's discussion. There's a little bit of a feud with Brandel Chambly because people are saying he shouldn't have lost the weight that he did for the ESPN the body shoot, and he's been forthright about saying yes, I 
intentionally lost 20 or 30 pounds for this photo shoot and it affected my golf game and people are like what's wrong with you and he's like i was getting photographed naked what's wrong with you <laughs> um there, there's you know it it and the fact that he's put himself out there anyways but i, I heard a, a podcast with him recently where sounds like a guy that is just super down to earth uh he's a little bit of a grip it and rip it player uh but he also said you know, they asked him if he was uh, intimidated at all by Tiger, specifically going back to the Masters. He's like, no, I dunked it in the water, but why would I be intimidated by Tiger? I've beat him before. And uh, on the heels of that Tiger Masters win and the fact that Kepka knew he was paired with Tiger today, I think that's a little bit bold. I don't know that it's out of line, but I'm like, okay, man, like that that is uh, that is one way to call, like, essentially say that you're not and I, you don't expect anyone to say that they're going to be shook by Tiger. But at the same time, I thought it was a little bit bold. And then playing with Tiger, he comes out and he just pounds him into the ground, beating him by nine shots on the round. And sounds like Tiger was not feeling his best. But when you kind of put it in the perspective of the guy who might have taken the green jacket from you a month before and the greatest player the game has maybe ever seen, certainly the greatest of this generation, um, to go out there and put up a course record, uh, it, playing in the group with him specifically and, and do it almost so casually was uh, was really impressive. And I'm interested to see what he can do the rest of the week because it looks like the course is playing really tough. And I don't know that he just won the tournament on that first round. I think it's unlikely that's the case, but he, he certainly put himself in a great spot. Yeah, all well said. He is a fascinating character um, for all the reasons you mentioned. And, you know, he's been outspoken about being, you know, you mentioned that he is a grip it and rip it type player. I think what you mean by that is, I mean, he's been kind of open with, it's not that he doesn't love golf, but he, he's, he, he says he honestly like likes other sports more. I think he played volleyball at some point. Uh, I know he's like really into football, baseball, and basketball. He's a big fan of all of those three. He, he, he yeah, likes- and you know what? One of the things I heard, just to, to <clears throat> make, talk about how interesting, he when he was 10 years old, he was into a bunch of sports. He was in a bad car accident in which he was in the front seat. His nanny ran ran a red light and T-boned another car going like 45 or 50 miles an hour. He hit his face on the dashboard, broke his nose and a bunch of other bones in his face, and he couldn't play contact sports for like a year. Mm. And And so he could pretty much only play golf. He got really into it and good at it. But only, pretty much only by default, he liked the more traditional sports. And you look at his body; he built like a linebacker. Uh, but he then basically, when he was able to play contact sports again, he got into baseball. He wasn't any good at it. And he's like, "Well, I'll go back to golf." And he never picked anything else up. Yeah, I didn't know that story. That that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's open about how he doesn't even really like to watch golf if he's not in the tournament. He prefers other sports. Prefers doing other things. I mean, golf isn't like his whole life, even though obviously he's really good at it. And, that, and to mm-hmm. be that good, you have to work really hard. You know, and, and the other thing that I find fascinating about him from a golf perspective is, you know, going back to just even last year, a year in which he won both the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship. I think even going into the PGA Championship, he wasn't really in the top five favorites heading into that, Ryan. I mean, no uh, guys, just guys that are his age, like, excuse me, <coughs> ah, excuse me, just guys that are sort of in his era, his, his age guys like Jordan Spieth, Justin Yeah, he's Thomas, 29. He's right there with all those yeah, guys. Uh, Rory McIlroy and Ricky Fowler. I think those are mm-hmm. the sort of the four that have overshined him and, and Dustin Johnson. Sure. Dustin yeah. Johnson, for sure. 
you know, and him and Johnson are actually really good friends. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think all of those guys have gotten more hype, more publicity, you know, even within the last year. But he won- he became last year the first player since Curtis Strange, I think, in the early 90s to win the U.S. Open two ta- two years in a row. And if he wins this this tournament this weekend, a, a tournament that he, as you said, shot a course record 7-under-63 today, Beth Page Black. If he were to go back-to-back at the PGA, how many guys have won two different majors in back-to-back Back-to-back, back. yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Be, it's got to be a very, very short list. Um, so, you know, the, the guy, he finished, as you said, he tied for second at the Masters this year. Uh, two years ago, he finished tied for sixth in at the British Open. So he's, he's either won or contended at every single major championship. He's an incredible athlete. He's unflappable. I mean, he basically shows, like, no emotion on the course ever. He's just as right. stoic as can be. Seems well, like nothing bothers him. And, and it's and funny because he's he's a guy that he's got three major championships, but he only has two other PGA Tour wins. So it's not like he it, he uh, does it all the time. Right. And, and, and he was even asked, like, what's the deal? And he's like, well, I don't know. Like, the majors are a big deal. Maybe you just care more. And it's not like... I mean, that's such a simple thing to say, and you're almost like, wait, does this mean you could you could play better more often and you just kind of don't? Or is it just like you can turn it on and dial it in and focus better than anybody else? Maybe a little bit of both. But uh, definitely an interesting figure for sure. Yeah, that's a really good point. His first win came at the Waste Management Phoenix Open in 2015, the famous uh, tournament there that's always on Super Bowl weekend. And then I'll be going to that tournament next year. That's where my brother's bachelor party Ooh, is. That's great. That that's gonna that'll be awesome, yeah. Um, and then I guess he won in the fall. He won some tournament called the CJ Cup, which is not like a any of those tournaments that are after the Tour Championship in October. Not great fields. So no, uh, yeah. I mean, so to your point, he's he's really only won four real PGA Tour events, and three of them were made. have been massive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, he's a fascinating character. I don't think this tournament's uh, over by any stretch of the imagination. This course they're playing on looks just, it looks incredibly gorgeous and it looks incredibly tough. Uh, Mm -hmm. I love watching them play this course and I'm excited for three more days of it at at the PGA Championship on Long Island. So good, good of the week. Uh, What's your bad of the week? Uh, My bad of the week feels like it's turning into this part of the podcast where I complain about pe- different people on the internet. Uh-huh. But uh, th- this, th- this week, it's, uh, it's the, ga- the holier-than-thou Game of Thrones fans. And it's, I know you, I don't believe that you were a Game of Thrones uh, viewer, are you? Are you a Game of Thrones person? I've seen one episode ever. Okay, so that's a basically a no. And the, and, but that's not, that's not really the point. I think you'll still be able to identify with this regardless. But it's just... You don't, I, I know it. I agree with what you're going to say, but keep going. It's, yeah, but basically just when fanaticism jumps the shark into a sense of entitlement about having an opinion about something. And, uh, and that's what's happened with Game of Thrones where everybody thinks they know the best way the show should end. And so everyone's complaining about the way that it is ending. And it's become such a cultural phenomenon that it's almost like required that if you watch, you have an opinion on what the the showrunners should be doing or should have been doing. And I watch the show and I have opinions myself, but 
there are now people, Michael, that are starting like a petition to get more episodes made and to change the ending that's been leaked. And all it's like at some point you have to go back and realize the reason you're somehow making yourself upset about this is because you loved this thing so much at one point, And now it sounds like you hate it. So can we everyone just pump the brakes, step back and enjoy the thing that you used to enjoy a little bit. And it seems like this happens a lot with major television series. People were all up in arms with how the Sopranos ended. A lot of people didn't like, or it was controversial the way breaking bad ended. Uh, this game of Thrones ending maybe as controversial as as anything just because the twitter age we're in but i even remember the seinfeld finale being really controversial and something everyone talked about and i guess it's because everyone has developed a kind of vast appreciation they just want it to be this thing that they've built it up to be in their head but um it's like can we can we enjoy it and celebrate it instead of saying how it should be done that's basically where i am yeah, I mean, I agree. Getting on Twitter on Sunday nights the last <laughs> five or six weeks or whatever it's been, it's pretty annoying. I mean, I honestly, you know, like I said, I don't watch the show. I don't really know what the hell everybody's talking about. I really don't care. Uh, every It seems like it's just so popular. I mean, I don't understand how a show can be this popular. It, it's pretty amazing. You know, I've I've said it before on the podcast, and I'll just be on the record. I watch, like, no TV shows. Uh, I mean, not to say I have never watched TV shows, but there's not a single series that I'm, like, actively watching. Mm-hmm. I just really don't watch or read a lot of fiction. I guess I'm more of just sort of a, a non-fiction guy, uh, sports or non-sports. That's just mm-hmm. kind of more more the river that I like to swim in. Um, I just don't get it from the perspective of, like, it seems like people at a certain point lose sight of the fact that this show that they're watching is completely made up. It's completely fictitious. It's out of the mind of, like, some person. So, like, to get upset about it one way or the other, it's crazy to me because it's like there was a reason you liked it to begin with. So what right. is it in particular that you don't like now, and why do you have to put such energy into it? You know, I saw uh, Grant Liffman, I thought, had a good tweet on, I think, Monday in reaction to this petition that you spoke of, where they've got something like 550,000 electronic signatures to do something, I, I don't even know what, around the Game of Thrones. And, you know, not, not to get, uh, you know, uh, civic conscious here but you know he he said you know w- can't we get 550,000 signatures to like fix the water pipes in Flint Michigan or something yeah. like that and, yeah. I, and I think that's right on it's you know we've got so many real problems to deal with you, you watch the show enjoy it or don't and then move on but to be like putting actual time and energy in your real everyday life on a Monday or a Tuesday or whatever during the week it, it, it's a little much it's crazy and then it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And on top I mean, of that, it, that's everyone's it. just everyone's lost perspective on the fact that it is it is simple entertainment is is what it, it, when you boil it down, it's just entertainment. It shouldn't warrant outrage, which it has. And there, I mean, to to not like it, whatever. To be outraged is ridiculous. And then on top of it, like you talk about the real issues, just the fact that people are so upset at the way this fantasy world is unfolding. Scott Van Pelt had a tweet. That where he said, there are flying dragons, they breathe fire, one has blue eyes, and was a zombie dragon that melted a big ice wall, I think. 
people are arguing about how things aren't making it the the sense at the end of this show, but they're flying, fire breathing ice dragons, man. It's like, what are you really complaining about here? It, it, it's nuts, and we can pretty much leave it at that. Yep. Um, okay, I was gonna forfeit my bad of the week. I'll just do a quick one uh, for the fans out there. You know, this is something that I tweeted about, and, and I've actually. It's kind of I've kind of been on the warpath on this since the NBA playoffs started, and I'm starting to see more people agreeing with me on Twitter. And it's simply I'm tired of every NBA playoff franchise feeling the need to hand out these shirts for everybody to put on <laughs> before every single playoff game. You know, I yeah, I'd like yeah. to go back and figure out where and when it started. It seems like you know I go back to the We Believe Warriors in what was that? Oh eight. Um, when you know they, you, you still see fans wearing them around now. The the We Believe shirts. I don't know if they were handing them out every game back then. I don't know if they started it, but that it was around ten years ago. I think that this whole thing started, and I'd say over the last four or five years, it seems like literally every team hands them out before every single playoff game, and it's just lost its appeal. If it's a game seven. Uh, and you want to do it, fine. Or if you're a team like the Raptors and you haven't been in it forever, I get maybe doing it every game then. But for a team like the Warriors to be handing them out every single game now for five straight years, I think it's just lost its appeal. And you actually see, I think, fewer and fewer people putting them on because I think yeah. the fans themselves are tired of wearing them. Cause it's well, just... and they only fit a quarter of the people that get them anyways. That's a great point. They're, they're, I think they're all, they're all in one, one XL size. size. Yeah, it's like usually yeah. XL. Uh, and then the other thing that seems counterintuitive is, you know, these teams spend all this money marketing their gear, and it's a huge revenue stream for all of these franchises. I mean, huge. I mean, these are global brands, and with the internet now, people in any country in the world can buy this stuff online so easily, and the teams make pure profit on all this, but they spend all this time selling the gear, and then to ask their fans sort of to cover up this cool gear that the fans spent a bunch of money on, I think is a little weird too, but ultimately, the reason they do it is because they sell these shirts to a corporate sponsor, put a logo, and it's just another revenue stream for the team, so that's really where the rubber meets the road, like yeah. pretty much everything else, and, and the whole thing is just stale, I don't like it, I'm sick of it, it it's just a tired act. And it, it bothers me on some level. And, and that's my bad of the week. Yeah, the, the one thing I'd say about it is I do think it's really cool. It looks really cool on television and even in an arena when there is a unified color from everyone. I just think it looks really badass. Like when Oregon first made their huge uniform change, like way back in 2003 and introduced the lightning yellow that was just so obnoxiously bright. Yeah. Like everybody in the stands wore that color that year and it looked killer. They beat number four Michigan and it was like this picturesque, gorgeous, vibrant thing. And I do think it can look really awesome. Mm -hmm. But now people are trying to do different sections in different colors. And like you said, because it's lost its luster, a lot of people aren't putting these shirts on, so it's kind of this half-assed thing. And then you've got these doofuses in the front row wearing T-shirts over business shirts. And, like, it's just – it's not really a great look for most people anyways. I think that the compromise here, you want to do something corporate fine. I kind of miss the rally rags. You see those more at baseball games, but, like, you can put – 
have like a bright towel that everyone has in the same color. And that'll look cool when everyone's waving those at the same time. And that's still a souvenir people can take home and a kid can pin up on his wall or something. Yeah. But like, um, I, yeah, I think that the T-shirt thing is tired. I think that it's really tired when they do the thing where they shame people for not wearing their shirts on like a Jumbotron. It's like, OK, hold on. I paid my own money to be here tonight. I'll wear, I'll wear whatever the hell I please. Thank you very much. Yeah. We don't need to spend any more time. Let's keep going. That's my bad of the week, corporate greed. What's your interesting <laughs> of the week? <laughs> uh, you know what? Let's go with your interesting of the week. Keep it on basketball, and then I'll hit you with mine, which is a non-sports interesting of the week. Good, good call. Good, good hosting there. Um, sure, thanks. Okay. My interesting of the week, as you said, stays on the, on the NBA hardwood, but not so much on the hardwood, uh, but the, the draft lottery. And I thought it was cool how the Pelicans uh, beat out the Lakers and the Knicks for Zion uh, the other night. I thought it was really exciting with the Final Four where you saw the Lakers move up into the, the Final Four and it looked like maybe LeBron was going to land Zion or maybe the Knicks were going to land Zion. And then you have probably the two least, I don't know, the, the two smallest market teams and two as sort of least colorful uh, franchises in the NBA, the Grizzlies and Pelicans along there with them. And I, for one, was kind of happy to see the Pelicans and Grizzlies get the first and second picks because mm-hmm. I think it's just good for the NBA in general. It may not be good for the league in general per se. You know, obviously I think the Lakers or Knicks getting Zion is quote-unquote better for the league, but I think it's just better for the competitive balance of the league when you see a team like the Pelicans or the Grizzlies end up with this pick, with this, you know, supposedly transcendent player. It's a little weird, you know, here with the Pelicans, with Anthony Davis allegedly wanting to get traded, heading into the last year of his deal. It'll be interesting to see what that that dynamic is. Do they trade for it? Do they send him out of here? Uh, During the summer, you know, they've got a new GM, former Cavs GM David Griffin, who everybody seems to think really highly of. You know, can he convince Davis to at least play up to the February trade deadline with Zion, kind of see how it goes? I mean, I don't know. That'll be really interesting. And then, you know, when you talk about, I think that this all ties in when you you bring the Knicks into the picture now, who get the third pick, they're going to probably end up with R.J. Barrett, who should be a pretty good player. And then, you know, with all the rumors now, it, it, it seems like, Durant is almost a done deal to go play at Madison Square Garden. Uh, Who knows what's going to happen with the crazy point guard in Boston. Uh, Who knows what's going to happen with Anthony Davis. There's a lot of pieces in play. You're even hearing rumblings now that the Lakers might move LeBron, which would really shake things up. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I think we're heading into a very intriguing part you know, the NBA just is awesome right now. You know, you've got these great playoffs. You've got all this off-the-court intrigue with all these players I just named, with the, with the rookie Williamson heading the list. I just think there's a lot going on. It's very, very interesting. I'm excited to see how it all plays out. Yeah, I think it is interesting. This was this bordered, bordered on being my bad of the week, not because I don't think the situation's interesting, but the one element that I really don't like about it was that as soon as it wasn't the Knicks that that got the pick, or even another big market team like Chicago that got the pick, immediately out of woodwork are people saying he should go back to Duke, he should sit out, he shouldn't he shouldn't go and play in New Orleans. That was something that was that was go- going through the news cycle the last forty eight hours, and I'm like, wait, wait, hold on, because 
Why? Because New Orleans, like, maybe doesn't have a rabid fan base or they've been historically poor. That means he shouldn't go there. So you're just supposed to, like, if you're a superstar, ignore franchises who have been fledgling for a while. I mean, at some point, these teams are supposed to turn it around and pull themselves out, and they do that by taking the best player in the draft. So, like, it's... I don't like this idea that if it's not the perfect fit for everybody, someone should just refuse to do it. I, you know, I wasn't a big fan when you know Eli Manning and, and their family said, "Well, we're not going to play in where it was it San Diego." Yeah. Um, and I kind of don't like the I'm putting myself in the draft, but these are on my terms. I at this I'm a little bit torn by it though. Because at the same type, at same time, in what other career field or profession do you not get to choose where you go to make your paycheck? I mean, so so I get from the competitive balance standpoint, it needs to be this way. I think from the standpoint of like a, an employee and organization, it's a little weird that they're essentially told when they when they join the workforce where they have to work. But at the same time, if we just start allowing superstars to dictate where they go and play when they first get to the league. The rich will get richer, and the poor will get poorer, and the league is going to get really ugly. Yeah, if that happens, you don't have a league anymore. I mean, you're right. you're not going to have. But a that's what people are suggesting, league. Michael. Like there are legitimate basketball people saying he shouldn't go there. Yeah, well, the difference between that and the Eli Manning situation, and there have been a few others, is yeah, there have been a lot. There have been a number of others across multiple. JD sports, Drew so. sticks out as one. Uh, what, who, who did, who was he going to refuse to play for? Mm, I don't remember the JD drew one as much. I obviously, I think it was the Phillies. He didn't want to go play for the Phillies. He he did it. He went back to college. John Elway did it. John Elway said he wasn't going to go where he got drafted. Was it the Colts? It was the, it was the then Baltimore Colts. Yeah. 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 So, So, but the difference between them and Zion is Zion hasn't said that he doesn't want to go play for the No, Bulls. other people are saying he should do it. Yeah, well, that's, that's a ridiculous. vile for him. I mean, you know, that's like the that that's akin to these Game of Thrones fans uh, signing a petition. It's just dumb and it, and it doesn't really have any impact on what's actually happening. So, uh, you know, I just think it's good for the league. I do. And 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 I don't really give a damn if, you know, more fans are pissed that he's not going to the Knicks and Lakers. The Knicks are the biggest disaster of a franchise in the sport, uh, you know. So for him to avoid going there, I think is in some ways a good thing for the league. Although it would be obviously come with a lot of of intrigue and, and whatnot. But you know, as far as the Pelicans go, you know, why shouldn't the Pelicans be able to have put Zion right. and Davis together? I mean, they've done it fair and square. And, and, you know, New Orleans is one of the great cities, in not only in America, but in all the world. And I think if they were... And to- they've proven themselves to have great sports fans when it comes to college football and the NFL. And I, I don't totally yeah. understand why it hasn't translated, but you feel like a, a talent like Zion, paired with a talent like Anthony Davis, might be able to, to, to create a little interest there. 100%. If, if, they, uh, if, if this guy, Zion, is as good as we think he's going to be, they're going to be a very good team with those two players along with Drew Holiday. They're going to be very exciting, and I think the fans are going to show up and buy tickets. I really do. I think that this is a fan base that's really just been waiting for something to really get behind and cheer about. I mean, when they made that run in the playoffs last year, it seemed like all of their games were sold out, and it was a great atmosphere there. I mean, people in New Orleans, above all else, like to have a good time. So if you give them a yeah. reason to have a good time, 
they're yeah. going to have a good time. So I, I just think that that whole thing, you know, ha- have they been the most amazing uh, fan base in the league? No, but they, they basically got, you know, a team that moved there from Charlotte. So it wasn't really their team to begin with. And they really, for the most part, haven't been all that good. They've had some nice players come and go. But, like, you and I remember them turning out. Their fans were awesome, that series that Steph hit the the, the three-pointer right at the buzzer in the corner. Over um, Davis. I mean, yeah, I mean yeah. that was that series. Their fans were rabid. I, I believe the Warriors went on to sweep that or, or win it in five. But yeah. uh, they cared enough then, and I think you, you you put the right team on the floor. They're gonna they'll care again. Yeah, and when Chris Paul was there before he got traded to the Clippers, you know they were showing up for that. I think. I mean, I may be wrong. Maybe they didn't have great attendance, but it's not like the place is just completely empty when they have an interesting and exciting product on the court. So I, I'm, I was just happy that it wasn't the Lakers and Knicks. Um, and, and I'm excited to see what happens with Davis and Zion together. And I'm excited to see, you know, if, if the Pelicans can pull a trade for Davis. I think they ought to keep him and see if they can convince him to stay and put together one of the, the best front courts in the history of the NBA. Because I think there's certainly the potential for that. And if that does happen, I want to see it happen in the Big Easy. And I want to see basketball explode throughout the Southeast. So that, that's what I want to see. That's my interesting of the week. Let's move on. What's your interesting of the week? Wedding week, my friend. It oh, is uh, eight, eight days away as, uh, as we stand right now. Uh-huh. And so it's, uh, it's coming quick, and we're mostly ready, it feels like. All the, kinda, the hay is in the barn, so to speak, on, on everything major. And uh, so now it's just a matter of getting there and nailing down a couple details. But, you know, it's going to be a whirlwind, man. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing all the people who are um, traveling for it. Uh, you will obviously be there, as, you've, as we've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, about a guest list of about 120 people, family and friends, um, really expecting to have a fantastic time. One of the things that should make it interesting is – there has been, after a, a stint of fantastic weather in, in Tahoe City, uh, some rain and even some snow in the last week, and it looks like there will be into next week. So that's give, given us a, a little bit of concern, my fiancé, too, a little bit of stress, wondering, will we have to have our umbrellas? Will we have to tell people to bring raincoats? Will we be able to have our ceremony outside? Um, I think we all of, we will be fine on that front, but... It obviously adds a, a layer of intrigue and or stress to the whole thing. So um, there's you know there's a lot going on. We're going to do the nine and a half hour drive from here in Portland to Tahoe on Sunday, and then uh, kind of hunker down, take it easy for a couple days, and then family starts getting into town on Wednesday. But but yeah, it's uh, last week as a uh, technically as a bachelor. I've been living with my fiance for some time, but last week is a quote unquote single man. Yeah, I'm looking at this weather forecast right now here on my phone. Um, <laughs> it's snowing there right now, uh-huh. and which is no big deal because, as you mentioned, you're not getting married for eight days. But in the next week, yeah, it's not looking great. I mean, it's going to snow on Tuesday, maybe on Thursday. Friday right now, high of 50. This is in South Lake, so it could be a little different on the other side of the lake. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, so I'm looking at the um, I'm looking at the AccuWeather 15 day forecast uh-huh. for the the actual day, um, and you could also also obviously get that a 10 day forecast. But it says 
30% chance of precipitation, considerable cloudiness with a couple showers possible. So it doesn't sound... And a high of 56. Too, uh, I'm seeing 59 on mine, okay. but yeah, either way, not, not warm. Yeah, I mean, um, I was thinking it was going to be 85 degrees out there and we were going to be on the beach <laughs> on Saturday. That, that's see, what I, I was picturing, but I guess that's not going to happen. That's no, I wasn't... Weird. I wasn't quite picturing that. I was thinking it was maybe going to be uh, high 60s, low 70s. But what we do have is a tent with cover for everybody and heaters in that tent. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm not worried at all. It's all going to work out. Um, it's eight days away. You're good. And, and uh, you know, the big thing here is you can't control it. So why even really nope. worry about it? I mean, it's weather. I'm not going to. Um, it, it, it's weather aside. I'm really looking forward to coming up and, and seeing and seeing it and being a part of it and just getting up to Tahoe and, and hanging out with a bunch of people, uh, throwing a few back and, and whatever, whatever, do whatever there is to do. And uh, so I'm really, my wife and I, Katie, we're both really looking forward to it. We're really excited. We're honored to be included. And, uh, you know, I just go back to my wedding and, you know, most things I feel like in life are like the big stuff are generally a little bit overhyped but the wedding I don't know at least for me the experience I mean there, there's a lot of elements of it right you know but but the experience of it was really not overhyped and I think the biggest part about it for me was just the fact that just having all the people in your life that mean the most to you all there at one time and it's sort of like two different families of that coming together and everybody yeah. sharing in this experience and I think that that's the really special part of it that's the really unique part of it is there will probably be enough never be another time in your lives where all of these people get together in one place and just sort of party and have a good time. yeah it's it's funny it's like it's you, it's not. I don't want to. I don't want to be morbid, but like the only other time you get this congregation of of people in your life is when you die. Yeah, um, it's and, true. And, and it's and it's like you. It's your one kind of. I don't want to say your one opportunity. Obviously, you could have a party and invite these people anytime you want, any other time of the year. But it's the one time in everyone's life it seems when you have the opportunity to bring the people who've meant most to you in your life together for one special night, and that that's going to be really cool. Yeah, and that's the best part of it. And I think that's the part that I remember the most. And it is a little bittersweet. And it's, it's kind of fucked up, honestly. It's like, <laughs> wh why is this the only day in my life where I can get all of these people together <laughs> at once? You know, it seems like you should be able to do it a little more. And not just you, but all of your friends, Yeah, just too. people, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's not right. It, you know, I feel like our society kind of fails us on this topic. <laughs> I, I, you know, if you if you really want to dig deeper, it's it's kind of a weird it's, it's a weird thing. It really is when, when you mm -hmm. stop to think about it. But you can't look at it like that. You got to look at, you know, the, the positive opportunity to get together with everyone and really just enjoy that aspect and savor that aspect and make the most of that aspect. I think that was the thing when I look back on not just my wedding, but any wedding uh, of, of any of my friends, you know, I think that that's really the thing that stands out when I look back on it. So I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be eight days now. 
Are we going to have a chance to, to have a pod uh, next week, or will you be in Tahoe? No, I'll, I'll already be uh, gone and in wedding mode. So after after this episode, we'll be off for two weeks before coming back to start of June, like okay. right around uh, NBA Finals time, probably mid-NBA Finals. That's cool. Uh, very, very good reason to not have a podcast. Um, okay, so that's your interesting of the week. Do you have a wild card? I do, and the reason we won't be able to do two weeks of podcasts is because immediately, well, I shouldn't say immediately following my wedding, about 48 hours after my wedding, uh, me and the uh, new Mrs. Buckley will be heading to New Orleans right. for our honeymoon. Uh, we've, I, I think we've discussed New Orleans a little bit early, uh, a couple months ago, but I, I could use a refresher. You and uh, have sent me a, a fantastic guide. I've talked to a number of people uh, who have been and, and kind of got their favorites from the experience. Talked to our mutual friend Sean Madison about it. His wife is from that area, yep. and uh, and anyways, got have some great wrecks. But um, just to to boil it down really succinctly, give me one place I have to eat, one place I have to drink, and one thing I have to see or see or do. Okay, good. I like that format, and I will say I'm glad you talked to Madison because he he knows New Orleans yeah. really really. Yeah, he, well. he he lived there for a month or two at one point actually. Yeah, and, and just any time you get to talk to him is a great time. No question. So, no question. Um, okay, so one place to eat, one place to drink, and one thing to do. Okay, well, I put these on my list that I sent you, but, mm-hmm. I mean, eating's tough. You know, I probably my best trip to New Orleans is when I went uh, to see Syracuse in 2003 playing the Final Four that they ended nice. up winning. And I remember the Sunday, you know, the, you, the Final Four is on Saturday, then you, I stayed till Monday for the championship game. So I had, uh-huh. like, all day on Sunday. I was out pretty late on Saturday. And the, the weekend brunch in the French Quarter, a couple blocks off Bourbon Street, but it's really in the thick of the quarter, it's called, I believe it's called the Court of Two Sisters. They have a famous uh, weekend yeah, I've, brunch. I've, I've heard of that place. Yeah, and it's probably... The best, I, I don't, I mean, I've had some great buffets in my life, but it's among the best buffets I've ever had. Just a classic New Orleans uh, brunch buffet with a jazz ensemble playing. Nice. They set up the food in this courtyard, and then you kind of sit around the buffet, and it was fabulous. You know, I think it was like 35 or 40 bucks all you can eat, which isn't cheap, but I mean, they had everything. You know, they had oysters on the half shell, shrimp, mm-hmm. cr- crab, everything. So I would go there for a weekend brunch. I, you know, that's my pick for food. Do they, do they do brunch during the week? Because we will be there Monday through Thursday. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, and I, I'll, I'll look into that, but that that they that restaurant was on our list to look at as a breakfast or brunch, anyways. So that's a good call. Do you have like a like a late night snack spot or a lunch or dinner spot that you know will be? Uh, well, you know, there's a spot that I've actually. I don't want to recommend a place I've never been because for obvious reasons. But everyone says that place, Jock Emos, like Jock mm-hmm. IMO, yeah. is one of the best yeah. places for lunch and dinner. Um, they have something that's famous there. They, that's that was something that you put on that list, uh, or that was that we looked into. They have a famous dish there that is a shrimp and gator stuffed cheesecake. It's yeah. like a savory cheesecake that's on the menu, um, and I think that we're gonna we're gonna make a point of going there at least for that. Yeah, I would I would do that. Um, and you know, anywhere 
any of the... Okay, here, here's another spot. They're, they have this area called, I think it's the French Market, and it's like kind of an open-air market. It's pretty okay. cool. But I think the original muffaletta sandwich was started there in that market at a place called... And I put this on the list I sent you to. I would mm-hmm. have to look it up. Was it, I think it was it Central Grocery? Central Grocery, yes. They, they invented the muffaletta. It's we'll be un- getting one of those for sure. Unbelievable. Go there. City Grocery, and then just kind of walk around that that French market area will be will be a really nice you know hour or so as you, yeah go there city awesome um, okay as as far as bars go I think my favorite bar there and maybe maybe my favorite bar in America is Ooh. called uh, Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop they mm-hmm. claim to be the oldest bar west of the Mississippi. No, 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 not with I think they claim to be the oldest bar in America, but I think a bunch of bars claim that. But they're a really yeah. I've old been to bar. a place in Boston that the, the Bell in Hand in Boston I, I've heard was the oldest bar tavern, the old, longest place to have beer on tap. Anyhow, yes, I've heard they do make that claim there. Yeah, so Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop. It's all on Bourbon Street, but it's like you got to go past all the touristy parts of Bourbon Street, and you go through kind of like a little bit of a dead part where there isn't really much going on, and you're going to almost think like you're lost or, or you've gone too far, you're not in the right area, but just keep going. For like two blocks, there won't be much going on, and then you'll eventually get to it. It'll be on your left if you're walking through like the real touristy part of Bourbon Street, and there it is. It's got like part and outdoor courtyard, and then you walk in, and it's super dark. And, and there's the bar in the front, and then in the back there's a piano. And there's always like a guy back there just taking requests, and everybody sits around the piano and sings along. And it's like super dark; you can't really see anybody, but it's just a super very unique New Orleans uh, vibe. And then on the bar itself, they they're famous for they have this like big cherry jar, and they're like atomic cherries, and the cherries are just sitting in like Everclear or moonshine, and so. Have a couple of those cherries. Uh, I highly recommend them. And then they've also got like one of those like daiquiri machines at the bar, mm-hmm. and then just a regular bar on top of that. I mean, I, I've spent hours in that bar before, and I know Sean Madison's a fan of that bar too. Uh, Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop. That that's my number one recommendation there for drinks. And then as far as places to go, I would say go to Lafitte's and then just keep walking down Bourbon. Okay away from Canal Street, away from okay. the, the crowded part of Bourbon Street until you get to uh, Frenchman Street, which is uh-huh. like basically like almost like a whole nother area that's mm-hmm. like Bourbon Street but not nearly as touristy, but there's bars everywhere, tons of live music down there, and it's almost like more of like a local person's Bourbon Street, if, if you will. Uh, and so I think just getting down to Frenchman Street, and they'll, they'll have live music, all night. Now, I don't know. I mean, during the week, it may be not quite as lively, but I, I, I think that there will be plenty, plenty to do uh, all hours. Excellent. Yeah, I, I know that the city is notorious for that and certainly look forward to um, burning the midnight oil there because, you know, it's one of those places we, we think we have plenty of time and that we're going to be there for four days and four nights. But uh, at the same time, there are so many great recommendations for things to do and, and, place, and places to visit and, and just bars to duck into and, and restaurants to have a bite at that uh, we're, we're going to have to uh, be up early and up late in order to, to fit as much in as we can. 
yeah, you're you're gonna have a great time. I mean, getting to go to a new place like that is is really gonna be a great experience. I'm jealous because I haven't been there in a bunch of years now, and I really want to get back. Um, you got a wild card for me? Yeah, I do, and and I'm not really sure how to say it, so I'll just start kind of saying it. So Beta Breakers is this Sunday, and I'm running uh-huh. in it for the third year in a row. Uh, with okay. my wife. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm sure that you, at some point living here, went to Beta Breakers. Am I right? Oh, yeah. Yes, okay. I did. So, uh, just off of Beta Breakers, and for those out there who don't know, Beta Breakers, I believe, is the longest still-running uh, foot race in America. And you basically, you start kind of down by the Bay Bridge, and you run all the way across the city of San Francisco till you get to the 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 beach or the breakers and it's about seven and a half miles and it used to be more of like a party atmosphere than it is now they've really cracked down on the open container and the floats and all the sort of debauchery but it's still a lot of fun i'd say about half the people who do it wear costumes and, and really get into it but just off beta breakers ryan what's sort of your favorite i don't really know how to say it like what what's the coolest like sporting event that isn't really a sporting event you know Mm. it's more of like an event than it is a sporting event that you've ever been to or maybe just one that you haven't been to that you'd really like to get to am am i making sense on this yeah yeah definitely um a couple things come to mind uh one that i that i have been to that it was really more about the pomp and circumstance than it was about the event is I got the chance to go to Royal Ascot, yeah. which is England's version of the Kentucky Derby. Right. And, uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's certainly a sporting event. It's a horse racing event, but, um, they, it's a, a very, has a very posh dress code. You're not admitted unless you're in a full traditional British morning dress, which is a top hat and coattails with a waistcoat. So, um, you know, I, I had to rent all that stuff at the British equivalent of a men's warehouse to, <laughs> to, to get into, um, the the races and it you know people have hats there that make derby hats look like baseball caps i mean they're they're just ridiculous and huge and ornate almost like beach blanket babylon type hats and so there's uh it it for some people is like a really really high-end costume party almost um but wild atmosphere and obviously you're in another country um so very cool that that would be kind of the most unique event type sporting event that I've been to. One of the ones that I'm really uh, interested in, and it's, it's driving me nuts that I'm not actually able to come up with the name of the small college, but it's either a Division three or an NAIA school in, uh, I believe it's in Indiana, and they have this silent night game. Have you seen this before? Where basically everybody dresses up, it's in a tiny gym for like, with like 3,000 people, and the, the basically the rule is Everyone is dead silent until like the tenth point of the game gets it's a basketball scored. Basketball game, right? Yes, basketball game. I have then, seen video of it. And then everyone goes ballistic, loses their mind. They like rush the court mid-game, and people are dressed up in group costumes and individual costumes. It looks like the circus, and I, I don't really know the full tradition behind it, but I've seen it a couple times over the years on Sports Center. Yeah. I have a friend of mine. Um, Dave, who actually drove the RV on my bachelor party, he's actually been to it. I can't. I want to say it's like Taylor University. You, that's. I just, just looked it up. That you hit it. It is Taylor University, an NAI school 
NAIA school in Upland, Indiana, and it's called Silent Night, and it's been going on now for I guess like uh, this. So this was in twenty in twenty fifteen. It had gone on for nineteen seasons. So we're coming up on like twenty five years of it. Got it. So yeah, that I've always found that to be uh, intriguing. So I guess those would be my two 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 answers. What do you about you? What well, do you that's, got? Th- that's a great one. I mean, I would have never thought of the Silent Night. I don't know why that popped into my head, but that was one of the first things. Yeah, for me. Uh, the one that comes to mind immediately, I would love to go to the running of the bulls in Spain. Oh, yeah. Um, ah. I mean, that that's at the very top of my list. Would you run or just watch? That's a good question. I've thought about that. I would have, I have to do to. some serious research as to actual, mm-hmm. like, percentages of, like, what percentage of people actually get seriously hurt. Like, how risky is it? I'm not really well, sure. And I would have to do some serious research on the, like the route and the geography and like the what my outs are. I mean, I, I would I would plan it like a golfer walking the course before uh, before a major. You know what yeah, I mean? Totally. I'd have to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I it, it looks like the sort of thing where you're probably okay, but it also looks like shit could really hit the fan in a hurry. You well, because the thing that you're not going to be able to control is what the entirety of the crowd is doing. Like right. You could do everything right and still not have a choice about where you go in the matter. And that's the scary part. You've got to be able to like leave yourself out so that the decision can be like up to you and you alone. But if it's getting driven by the crowd or, God forbid, the bull, you're in real trouble. Yeah, uh, totally agree. So that would be my number one. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, outside of that i feel i mean what are what are some others i know there's I've, I've been to the kentucky derby i'd really like to go to the indy 500 but you know having been to quite a few just motor races you know i can't see the indy 500 being that much different than some of the stuff that i've been to so i don't know if i'm really dying to go to that um, and for me, though, like a lot of a lot of college football, uh, potential college football opponents, it would be as much about the experience surrounding the game sure. as the game itself. You know, an opportunity to go tailgate at another school in the SEC or maybe the Big Ten, um, something like that, because some of them have traditions unrelated to the actual games themselves that are that are pretty cool. Yeah, and, you know, we talked about our bucket list sporting events. I'm not really talking about, like, actual sporting events. I'm talking about, no. like, more off-the-beaten-path stuff. You know, you mentioned the Waste Management Open in Phoenix. I would really mm-hmm. like to go to that. I think that would be really fun. And then on not go to the tournament on Sunday, but, like, go to a really sweet sports bar or something and watch the Super Bowl and then fly back Monday. I think that mm-hmm. could be really cool. You know, I feel like there's a couple that I'm missing – but for me, the big one is the is uh, the running of the bulls in Spain. I I would really like. It's a to great call. It's a great call. Oh, okay. you know, you know, one other thing that I that I that I would like I'd like to do that. I guess it's not really a sporting event. There are some really cool, um, like summer solstice type festivals around the world. Places yep. that are really far north where the sun basically doesn't go down. There's like cool parties in places like Alaska and and my good friend Chris. He did something really cool when he was uh, he lived and worked in London. It was actually it was um, him who I me and two other friends went to visit to go to the Royal Ascot when he was living and working in London. That was the catalyst for the trip was Mm -hmm. was going to see him. But he um, took a trip 
to, I want to say uh, it was to Iceland on the summer solstice, and he played a midnight round of golf and was and basically teed off at midnight and finished around 4.30 a.m., and it was light enough to play and see your ball the entire time. So, That's badass. Um, and, like, the, the city has a big party and festival, like bonfire and stuff like that. So um, it's not really surrounding sport as much as it is the season, but it's kind of a cool thing to be able to, to do that thing. Like, it's almost like the Sandlot guys being able to play under the fireworks on 4th of July or whatever, but summer solstice allowing you to play golf literally at midnight. Yeah, that's really cool. And, you know, I think the summer solstice is actually a little bit underrated in general. Totally. Uh, and, I agree. And, and funny, you know, my friend Tyler, who, who you know as well, his birthday is on the summer solstice. And there was a stretch where he and I played at like a kind of like a special golf course, like a different one every year. I think like five years in a row on his birthday on the summer solstice. And every year we teed off at like four and, yeah. know, and finished like eight forty five nine in mm-hmm. twilight and that was always really fun and really special just playing golf late on the mm-hmm. summer on the summer solstice even here in north america is a pretty cool feeling on just you know the, lo- yeah. the most daylight of the year yeah definitely it's uh I, I i think it's super underrated i actually got to spend a summer studying abroad in Denmark and they had a big festival there on the summer solstice. Um, and we were so far North that it was light outside. Like, I mean, the, the sky kind of had that dark indigo hue at like 1130 at night. I mean, it like legitimately was light out. It was dusk until about 10, 15, 10, 30. Yeah. And then there's one other element and my friend, uh, I went on this like work trip the last couple of days and we were talking about this yesterday. We were talking about how we had never been to Wisconsin before and how we, mm-hmm. we thought that summers like on the lakes up in Wisconsin are probably yeah. a pretty good scene. And really any place, whether it's here in America or to your point, like in Iceland or Denmark or Canada or Finland or Russia, wherever, like northern places that are cold for much of the year, they do those places do summer right because they, they only get like three or four yep. months of good weather and they go all out and there's usually like lakes or rivers there's a lot of boating and a lot of cooking out and drinking and swimming and all that and i'm in for all that any any place that's like north where the weather sucks for eight months usually those four good summer months are like really really fun places to be my old roommate um travis who you may meet at the wedding uh i I lived with him for four or five years he's from old town maine Mm -hmm. uh which is outside of banger and uh and basically um exactly what you're talking about and every summer they would have a massive fourth of july party and they had a little lake house and basically the kids would kind of have their party at the lake house and the adults would have uh their party at, at the main house but but basically he's like we sit around and we drink Budweiser, like Bud Heavy, and eat lobster and lobster mac and cheese all day long. And it's pretty much those two things, and it stays light until almost 10 o'clock and because they're so far north. And then they light off fireworks all night, and uh, and <laughs> depending on what age they were, uh, some other illicit activities at times. But uh-huh. uh, it's like the <laughs> just kind of the, the, the perfect summer getaway. He said it's like his favorite holiday because of that. And for years, I've been trying to find a way to get out to uh, Maine for 4th of July because he goes back for it every single year even though he lives in San Francisco now and uh-huh. uh, I, I'd love to have a, 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 a far north kind of summer experience, lakeside experience like that at some point it sounds really cool yeah well I actually went to summer camp in Maine as oh, a cool. kid 
So I've spent like five or six summers up in Maine, and it, and you know, even as a kid, it was awesome for all of these reasons. I mean, it's just a different vibe in these places where the weather sucks for most of the year. Uh, when they finally get good weather, they really know how to enjoy it, and those are great, great places to be uh, for a variety of reasons. But uh, let's wrap it up. Um, we've we've kept things relatively tight here. Um, we got a little loose at the end, but that's okay. And I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing you here in about a week. I haven't seen you in a really long time. I know and it'll it's been be a under while. very special conditions. So looking forward to it. Uh, loyal fans out there are gonna have to wait a couple weeks to hear from us again. But there's plenty of good podcasts out there for your listening <laughs> pleasure. I mean, the the podcast scene is obviously as robust as it's ever been, and there's Burgeoning. so so much good stuff out there. So thanks everybody for listening. Uh, I'll see you, Ryan, in just over a week. And everybody else, we say good night, everybody. Sleep tight. Good night, y'all.